0: may be seated. Uh, Children, if you're in first grade and you're below that, you may leave now to go to Children's Church. Uh, The rest of you may open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one as our children are leaving. And uh, again, thank you for making the trek out here in the snow. There's a lot of places you could be on a Sunday morning besides being in the house of God. And so um, as your pastor, I appreciate it. Everybody knows Albert Einstein, maybe not personally, but uh, you know that he was the most brilliant man probably to ever live in the 20th century. Albert Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. Uh, He's the icon, he's the poster child of of, of being smart, of having brains. Albert Einstein, and, and, and he was asked a question one day. Here's the question that Albert Einstein was asked. What is the hardest thing in the world to understand? And you know what his answer was? And this is for Mike and Mickey, the income tax. (laughs) Albert Einstein said the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. Now, I went to Johns Hopkins Magazine's website this past week to look at some of the most difficult things to understand, some of the most difficult things to, to get a grasp on are or, or difficult things to do. And so um, let's do a little test here. Maybe you know the answers to these this morning. If you do, you can just shout those out. If not, I can give you the answer. What's the most difficult language for Americans to learn? Does anybody know? What? what? Americans? English? Did you say English? <laughs> no, it's Japanese. Japanese is the most difficult language for Americans to learn. Um, some people may think it's English Um, what's the most difficult math problem to solve any of you students know what the most difficult math problem to solve is using only a compass and an unmarked straight edge divide a 60 degree angle into three equal parts in other words construct a 20 degree angle with no protractors allowed that's above my pay grade I don't understand what that means but here's the answer it cannot be done Mathematicians have tried to do it, but it's the most difficult math problem to solve because it cannot be done. What's the most difficult mystery of astronomy to understand? In our universe, a scientist and astronomer will tell us that it's dark matter, the whole issue of understanding dark matter. For those of you that are pre-med students, what's the most difficult um, surgical operation to perform? Anybody know? It's called the Whipple procedure. And no, it's not squeezing the Charmin with Mr. Whipple. It's the uh, removal of pancreatic cancer. Um, I guess the pancreas is the most deeply embedded organ in your body, and it's the hardest to get to. And so um, the pancreatic cancer removal, the Whipple procedure, is the most difficult surgery to perform. And so why do I bring your attention this morning to some of these difficult things to do, these difficult things to understand? The reason that I bring this before you is because we are faced with an issue this morning that is somewhat difficult to get our minds around. It's a subject that brings up a lot of emotion. It's a subject that's volatile. It's a subject where we're going to have differing opinions and so I'm just laying my cards on the table and saying that we're going to deal with the issue of predestination and election this morning because we're faced with it right here in the scriptures God's sovereignty it's very very difficult sometimes for us to grasp some of these truths Last week, we started looking at this one huge long sentence in the book of Ephesians, starting in in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way down to verse 14, 202 words, one huge long sentence by Paul. And Paul erupts with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. It's all about praising God, glorifying God, giving praise to God for what he's done in his abounding grace in blessing us. And we saw that Paul is fond of using triplicates or things in threes. You've got God the Father doing something. You've got Jesus the Son doing something. And you've got God the Holy Spirit doing something. That's the structure of the sentence. And then you've got a repeated phrase three times, repeated to the praise of His glorious grace or to the praise of His glory. So three times we're called to praise. Three times we see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in a triplicate. And then also repeated three times is the phrase, according to the will of God. And so this morning, we are going to turn our attention to the work of the Father. What has God the Father done in abounding grace? And we see that most clearly in verses 4 through 6. And the primary blessing, remember, Paul is expounding to us the blessings that we receive in salvation. The primary blessing that the Father blesses us with is His electing love in sovereign grace. So let's start actually in verse 3 where the sentence starts and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 and see the spiritual blessing of the Father in our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, now just the mere mention of these words, predestined, chosen, it may send a shiver up your spine, you may be trembling at this point, you may be ready to walk out, what's Sean going to talk about? We're going to talk about the whole issue of election and predestination. And the reason that we need to deal with this is because the words are right there in front of us on the page. Anytime I come across a person that says, well, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in election. I don't believe God does any type of choosing. I have to draw them to Ephesians because right there you've got the word chose and you've got the word predestined. And some people say, well, what do those words mean in the Greek? Chose and predestined. (laughs) Okay? So, I don't want us to get bogged down this morning. And, And just, by the way, if this subject makes you uncomfortable, bear with me. This is the last time we'll talk about it. Next week we'll move on to a different subject, okay? But we've got to deal with this. If I just skipped verses 3 through 6, you'd think I was a coward because I wasn't willing to deal with this difficult passage. So I'm not going to get down into the nitty-gritty because on Wednesday nights we're doing a lesson on understanding the doctrines of grace where we're getting a little bit more in depth. But I just want to show you and bring to your attention that all throughout the Bible, God makes a choice, God makes a choice of certain individuals. God makes a choice of nations. I mean, let's go all the way back to Genesis. God chose Noah to build the ark. God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations, of which the, uh, the, the world would be blessed through Abraham. God came to Moses in a burning bush and chose Moses to deliver the Israelites lights out of Egypt. God chose David to be the king of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel to be his treasured possession. God has the sovereign right to do whatever he wants because he is God. He is sovereign. Psalm 33, 8-11. through 11, The psalmist says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. This tells us about God's absolute sovereignty in doing what He's going to do. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God does what He pleases. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to accomplish his purpose. One more passage of scripture, Job 42 two, two. Job at the end of his, of all of his travails comes to this conclusion. I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. God's not frustrated in the universe that some power out there is going to stop him from doing what he is determined to do. So God stands above the universe as the sovereign God and can do whatever he wants. But here's the beauty of this idea of God choosing. God chose to choose. God chose to show grace. God chose to show mercy. And he did it simply because he wanted to. And speaking of the nation of Israel, God gives some very interesting insight in Deuteronomy chapter 7, about why God chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now there was no merit in Israel. There was nothing good in Israel. Israel wasn't great. Israel wasn't all that. There was nothing in Israel that moved God to choose Israel. God simply did it because he wanted to do it. It says, I did it because I love you. And so here we have this whole idea of sovereign election. And so before we even look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to keep something in mind, something very, very important. There was nothing in us that moved God to choose us. It wasn't because we were great. It wasn't because we were powerful. It wasn't because we were all that. God chose to choose us simply because it pleased Him to do so. And we'll see how that unfolds. But notice what the text says, verse 4. Even as He chose us, the Greek word there means to elect, to choose, in Him, in Christ. That's the key. It's election in Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, in Him, through Him, shows up 11 times in this long sentence. The key is that everything happens in Christ. Our election is in Christ. God chose us in Christ. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5 says this. Paul says it another way. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So it says right here, God chose us in Christ. But here's another question. When did it happen? When did God do His electing? When did God choose? What does the text say? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This happened before any of us were created, before the world was even created. God chose in eternity past to choose us for salvation. It's interesting when you look at Paul's writings elsewhere. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, Paul says something very interesting. He says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. So when did God give us grace? When did God set his purpose in motion? Before the ages began. Now, how many of you have ever heard a preacher say this? If you accept Jesus Christ today, your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So trust Jesus, believe in Jesus, accept Jesus, and when you do that, your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So make sure that you trust Jesus today. Have anybody ever heard that? Let me show you what Revelation says about the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 13, 8 says this. It's talking about taking the mark of the beast, worshiping the beast. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Now, when were the names written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. Now, at this point, it may be beneficial to give you the two views of election. Because there may be many of you in this room that are in different camps, okay? Let me give you the two views. Let me, let me just lay them out on the table for you this morning. Let me just say from the very beginning, both views believe that it happened in eternity past before any of us were created. So that's not disputed. It, both views say that it happened in eternity past. Let me give you view number one. View number one is called the foreknowledge view. Here's the foreknowledge view of Election. And both these views are accepted in Orthodox Christianity. They've been around for 2,000 years. Let me give you the two views. View number one is the foreknowledge view. God, in eternity past, looks down through the corridors of time and he sees who's going to accept or reject Jesus. Based upon what God sees, he then chooses that person for salvation. So it's based on God seeing into the future an event that will happen and then God ratifies it or God puts His stamp of approval on it. Let me give you an example. Let's say it's 1978 and Sally's a 10-year-old girl and Sally's at at children's camp. She's at children's camp. Um, The pastor's preaching the gospel. He's preaching powerfully. He gives an altar call. He says, all who want to trust Jesus, come forward and receive Jesus. Sally comes down to the front. She asks Jesus into her heart. She gets saved. At that moment in 1978, the foreknowledge view says God in eternity past looked down to that point in time, saw Sally trusting in Jesus, and based upon what he sees, he elects Sally for salvation. So in this view, God doesn't necessarily elect, he more ratifies what he sees happening. That's view number one. The second view is called the sovereignty view. The Sovereignty View basically says God chose to save a lot of people. Millions upon millions of people. He chose to save them. He chose to put His electing love upon them. It was nothing in them. It was nothing that He saw in them. He didn't see them accepting or rejecting because... People are dead in sin. People are sinful in their sinful state. Nobody would choose Christ, so there's nothing for God to see. God simply chose a lot of people and left other people in their sins because He simply wanted to do it. There was nothing in the sinner that moved God to do it. God simply saved. God simply chose. God simply elected because He wanted to elect. Those are the two views. You can agree with either one of those views and still have fellowship in Emmanuel Baptist Church. I've often said these are doctrines, not dogma. Dogma are those absolute standard things that we've got to hold on to that we will not capitulate, we will not budge upon. Your view of election is a doctrine. If you agree with the sovereignty view, which all of you know, that's where I stand. I'm going to lay my cards on the table. Everybody knows that that's where I'm at. Maybe not everybody knows, but now you do. That's where I'm at. If you believe the foreknowledge view, that's perfectly fine. You can, you can have the freedom to believe in whichever view of election you want to believe in. What I want to show you this morning is what the text says. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, let me just give you some insight from Jesus. Jesus says something very interesting about election in John 6, 37-39. Jesus says this, and you may need to go back and read John 6 a lot to let this get sink into your mind and, and kind of process through this. Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Jesus makes an emphatic statement here saying, the Father has given me some people. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. They will come, I'm not going to cast them out, I will accept them, I will receive them, and I will raise them up on the last day. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, those that were chosen before the foundation of the world will come to Christ, because the Father has specifically given to Jesus a people. Now, what is the goal of your election? Look at the goal of your election in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul says the goal of our election is that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, election is a wonderful privilege. God chooses us, God elects us, but there's a purpose behind it. There's a purpose for us to be holy and blameless before Him. As a matter of fact, God is saving a people for Himself to be looking like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal in your election God's chosen you not just to save you from sin, but to save you, to conform you to the image of Christ, to where you look more and more like Jesus. You are demonstrating a holy and blameless lifestyle. As a matter of fact, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8. He uses some words that we see here in Ephesians, and he gives us the reason why God has chosen or predestined us. Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What did Paul say? We've been predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In Ephesians, Paul just says, we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. They're parallel statements. So our election is not just so that we can get saved, as great as that is, but God is forming us into a people to be looking more and more like Jesus. Now in verse 5, we've got the introduction here to the word predestined. He predestined us. Now you may be asking the question, Well, what's the difference between God's choosing and God's predestining? It says the word God chose, and then it said the word God predestined. Is there a difference between those two words? Well, in the grand scheme of things, not really, but let me just kind of tell you the the, the main difference between the words. The word chose means God elected. God set his love upon. God chose. Predestined deals with your destiny. What does the word predestinate mean? The root word is Destiny. Your destination. Pre means beforehand. So God set up beforehand your destination. What is your destination? What does He say that you've been predestined to? Look at the text. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. Adoption. Now the first major blessing of our salvation is being chosen by God. Being elected by God, being predestined by God. The second major blessing is adoption, being adopted into God's family. What is adoption? It's staggering to think about what God has done. Before time, God in His infinite mercy chose to put His love upon you simply because He wanted to. Knowing all along that you were an ill-deserving, unworthy, hell-bound sinner, and God gave you the gift of mercy, and not only that, God has decided to adopt you into his very family. So as an adopted child of God this morning, you are a son and daughter of the living God, the king of the universe. And we may need to understand Roman culture here a little bit, to understand adoption. Remember, Paul's writing in Ephesus, and Ephesus was under Roman culture, Roman law. What did adoption look like in the Roman culture? There were two phases of adoption. If you were a son and you were to be adopted, the first thing that would happen is your natural father had to sell you into slavery. Three times. He would sell you into slavery once, an adoptee would adopt you. It would happen again. And then they would release you back twice to your father to make sure this is what you really wanted to do. The third time, the third transaction, the third time you'd been sold to your adoptee That was the the moment that you became adopted. So step one was to go through this three-time transaction. The third time you became part of that new father's family and you had all the rights and privileges of that father. You were adopted into that family. The father could give you every blessing of being in that family. You lost all ties with your former natural father. You made a distinctive break with your natural father. You are now adopted into the life of your new father. So adoption had this idea of old father, new father. Let's look at Ephesians chapter two real quick, because Paul tells us about our old father and our new father. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but Ephesians chapter two, just look down. He tells us what type of children we were, what type of sons and daughters we were before we were adopted into God's family. He says this in Ephesians two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, it's talking about Satan. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look at the descriptions Paul uses there. Children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Who was our natural father? The devil the flesh. We were children of wrath. And what has God done? God has taken us out of that state of our natural father, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, dead in our sins, and he's adopted us into God's family. Let me ask you a question. Is God ever going to give you up for adoption? I hope you say no. You are permanently secure in God's family once he adopts you. He's never going to let you go. He's going to keep you forever. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4-7, through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. What has God given you through adoption? His Holy Spirit. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're no longer a son of the devil. You have a new identity. You are a child of the Most High God. You are an heir with God the Father because He has adopted you. Now how has He adopted you? What does it say here? Let's go back to the text in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. That's the key. It's in Jesus Christ. How do we get in God's family? We've got to come through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. You may have heard people say this. Everybody's God's children. Everybody's a child of God. Does the Bible teach that? No. Everybody's God's creation. Everybody is a creation of God. Everybody has dignity. Everybody's created an image of God. But not everybody's a child of God. You only become a child of God when you trust in Jesus, when you have a relationship with Jesus, when you come through Jesus, then you're pronounced a child of God. Now, what was the foundation behind all of this? It's staggering to me that not only God would choose us. Now think about that. God would choose you knowing that you are an ill-deserving, hell-bound, child of wrath, dead in your sin, son of disobedience, father of the devil, father of your devil type of person, sinner, that God would choose you. And it's staggering that God did this before time began and that God adopted you into his family. But what moved God to do all this? What moved God to do it? And the answer can't be anything in us. There was nothing that God saw in us that would move him to do all of this. Paul tells us here what the foundation for all of this electing, adopting work of God was. Look at the last part of verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. That phrase is repeated three times. Here's the first occurrence. According to the purpose of his will. That word purpose is a very strong word in the Greek language. It means God's great pleasure. It's staggering to me. It means that God not only determined to choose us, but he did it with joy. It brought God great pleasure and joy and delight to choose you and me as his children. Now, the reason it's staggering to me is because I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm dead in my sins. I know that I was a child of wrath. I know that I was once disobedient. I know that I was once a child of Satan. I know that I was once rebellious. I know that I once had blinded eyes. I know that I was dead in my depravity and there was nothing in me that God looked down and said, I'm getting a great thing in choosing Sean Cole. No. I was a sinner hellbound and God looked down and said, I'm going to choose Sean because it brings me great joy. I don't know why. I do not know why God does that we may never know why God chooses. God never tells us why He does it. All He says is it's according to His purpose. It's according to His good pleasure. Some people may say, well, it's arbitrary. God just makes an arbitrary choice. God just is is real capricious. It's eeny, meeny, miny, mo." We can't say that because right here in the text it says it's according to His purpose. Now, God may not tell us what the purpose is, but it's according to a purpose. It's according to His plan. I don't know. Why I'm chosen. I don't know why you're chosen. I don't know why God would look down upon this group of people because we know ourselves and I know many of you and you know many of me. And if we were in charge of choosing, I guarantee you, we wouldn't choose us. What did Charles Spurgeon say? He said this I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. Now let me just ask you a basic question. Regardless of what view you believe about election, when you think about the implications that God chose you, God adopted you, God set his love upon you, Who were once children of wrath, once sons of disobedience, once disobedient and rebellious against Him, what should it produce in us? What does Paul say there? Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. This is a repeated theme three times. First time we see it. To the praise of His glorious grace. This should bring praise. What kind of grace does Paul say it is? It's glorious grace or to the praise of His glory. All of God's glorious attributes are put on display when He chooses vile sinners to be adopted into His family. It should erupt in praise to God for doing that. Now Paul tells us how this grace came to us. Look at the second half of verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. The ESV translates this, blessed us. it's, It's a good translation in keeping with the idea of these spiritual blessings, but you know what the original Greek says here? He graced us. It's the verbal form of the word grace. God has graced us. He's shown us grace in who? In the Beloved. Who's the beloved? It's Jesus Christ. Again, it all comes back to Jesus. Our salvation, our election, our adoption, all of this grace comes back to Jesus being the center of everything. To the glorious grace of Jesus, the beloved. Now, why call Jesus the beloved? The NIV, I think, used the word the one in whom he loves. The beloved expresses God's way of looking at his very son that jesus is the object of god's favor it's jesus is the apple of god's eye do you realize there's two events in jesus's life where god spoke from heaven and said this is my beloved son at his baptism and at the mount of transfiguration they're both found in mark mark 1 11 and a voice came from heaven saying you are my beloved son With you I am well pleased. And then in Mark 9, 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. It's amazing to me just to think about the implications that the Father has graced us with Jesus. We could just stop right there and go home. That God has graced us with Jesus. Now, oftentimes when you talk about election, when you talk about predestination, uh, there's different opinions, there's different emotions. Sometimes it's all theoretical, it's theolog- theological, it's, it's, it's great for late night discussions, but how do we get it down to some practical application? What can you leave with this morning that will help you understand practically how to relate to this whole issue of election and predestination in your personal life? Let me give you four things this morning that I think are practical applications of this doctrine of election. Number one election produces a deep humility. It produces a deep humility. When you think about the fact that there was nothing in you that moved God to choose you, when there was nothing about you that made God love you, it should overshadow you with this deep sense of humility that God would even choose you. Let me just say this. God did not have to choose anybody. If God chose to save nobody, he would still be just. If God sent every single one of us to hell, none of us could be in hell saying God was unfair because God didn't have to save any of us. But for God to show grace and to save us should drive us to our knees in humility. We should never boast about our election. We should never take our, take, take our election for granted. God did it because He wanted to, and it should lead us to humility, a humble awe. If we're going to boast, let's boast in something that's worth boasting in. Galatians 6.14. Paul says, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me just say a word to those of us who hold to the doctrines of grace, to those of us who believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. Election never gives you a permission to boast. Election never gives you a permission to have this air of superiority that somehow I'm chosen and I was all that and God did a great thing by choosing me. No. God chose us because He decided to choose us and there was nothing in Him that moved Him to choose us. And we, of all people, should be the most gracious of Christians because God chose to show us grace when He didn't have to. So application number one is, if anything, it should drive us to humility to realize that God would dare save sinners such as us. Number two, election produces an assurance of salvation an assurance of your salvation. Think about it. If God planned in eternity past your salvation before you were born and God chose you and God predestined you and God adopted you and God sent Jesus to die for you and God sent the Holy Spirit to come live in you, why in the world do you think He would leave it up to you to make sure that you're finally saved? If he planned it in eternity past, that gives you the confident assurance to know that he's going to complete it, and you can be assured that your salvation was planned a long, long time ago, and God will make sure that you get to the finish line. Philippians 1 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you, when did that work begin? Did it begin the moment you trusted Christ for salvation? It began in eternity past when God chose you. And if God had started the work way back in eternity past, He's going to bring it to completion. So the doctrine of election should lead to this great confidence that God started it, God's going to finish it. He's not going to let me falter. I will be eternally saved. I've got the assurance of my salvation because God has done this in His great and mighty plan. Thirdly, Election produces holiness. I think this is one that we often neglect. There's a hyper view of election out there, a hyper view that says, well, if you're elect, you can live however you want. God saved you. You're going to heaven. You're one of the elect. You're part of the chosen, frozen. Go sin your heart out. Live however you want. I love sinning, God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. What does Paul say here? What are we chosen to? What are we predestined to do? To be holy and blameless. Now, evidence, evidence that you are one of the elect, evidence that you have been chosen, is that you're being conformed to the image of Christ and you're demonstrating a lifestyle that is holy. Holy and pleasing to the Father. There should be no person here that is among the elect that's not demonstrating some degree of holiness, some degree of pleasing God, some degree of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 15-16. He who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Election produces humility. Election produces a solid assurance in your salvation. Election produces holiness. And last, and no, you didn't hear me wrong, election produces effective evangelism. And at first glance, you may think this is a contradiction. I often get asked this. Well, if God's got it all figured out, if, if God's chosen people and it's all figured out, then what's my responsibility to go out and share the gospel? Why should I go out and witness? Why should I go out and even pray for lost people? What's the point if it's all figured out? Well, let me just say this. God's not only ordained the end, but he's also ordained the means. And the means that God has used is the gospel being shared out of our mouths. Regardless of what view you believe about election, you cannot deny the fact that God has commanded us. It's a command. It's a great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We hold nothing back with the offer of the gospel. We present the gospel to every single person we come in contact. We go into the darkest places of the world. We go into all the world. We go into all people groups. We share the gospel with every single person on planet Earth because we just don't know who the elect are. We go to everybody we hold nothing back. We can witness with confidence knowing that God's going to do the saving. God's going to bring his elect to faith when we go. Now, every time we share, not every time somebody's going to get saved. But when you understand that God does the saving, you don't have to relate to you don't have to relegate to arm twisting. You don't have to do these manipulative sales techniques. You don't have to do all this weird stuff to get people to come forward and make a decision for Jesus as if it all depended upon you. You can just be obedient to present the gospel, love people, share the gospel, know that God will save His people. As a matter of fact, Paul was discouraged one night in Corinth. If you know anything about Corinth, it was a wicked city. Paul was having some struggles. Paul was there as a church planning missionary. And Jesus appeared to him one night and gave him some encouragement and showed him how election and evangelism fit together. Acts eighteen nine through 11 And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God to them. Now, what did Jesus say to Paul? Keep on preaching, keep on sharing, keep on evangelizing. As a matter of fact, Paul stayed there how much longer? He stayed for a year and six months. Why? Because Jesus said, I have many of my people in that city. There's a lot of people in Corinth, Paul, who are my elect who have not yet heard the gospel. And it's your responsibility, Paul, to go share with them. And what did Jesus not say? Jesus did not say to Paul, it's all figured out, Paul. Go back and be a tent maker because God's going to save who God's going to save. Don't preach, don't teach. The elect are going to come. It doesn't matter what you do. Jesus said exactly the opposite. What did he say? He said, Paul, keep on doing it. Keep on preaching, keep on teaching because I've ordained for people to come to faith through your gospel witness. So keep at it. Many of you have heard of William Carey. He was a a missionary in the 1800s to India. He's, He's considered the father of modern missions. He's from England. And he was part of a Baptist tradition that believed in this hyper view of God's sovereignty. And he felt compelled to go be a missionary to India. And the elders and the pastors of his church came to him and said to William Carey, if God wants the heathen to be saved, he will save the heathen. He doesn't need you to do it. God's got it all worked out. Don't go be a missionary. And William Carey said, No way. I'm going to go sacrifice my life in India because I know that God has thousands and thousands of His elect there that I'm going to go and share the gospel with. And so William Carey said, I'm not going to buy this whole thing that God's going to save who He's going to save and this whole election thing means that you don't do evangelism. William Carey said, I'm going to go. My view in election means that I can go with confidence to know that God will save His people. Now... Maybe you're uncomfortable at this point, and that's okay. Maybe you're, you're a little scared, you're a little nervous. You're, you're like, How do I handle this doctrine of election? It makes it sound like God is really, really sovereign, and I'm not. And that could be a scary place for you to be this morning. Or on the other hand, let me just submit this to you. It could be very liberating and awe-inspiring. It can actually bring you freedom. Regardless of what you believe, let me just let you know what the text says. We've got a text in front of us. God chose us. Got to deal with that. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. What's the purpose of it? To be holy and blameless. God predestined us for what? to be adopted as his children. Why did God do it? It was according to the great purpose and pleasure of his will. And what did God do? He graced us with Jesus Christ. Regardless of what view you take of election, this is what we have in front of us. And what should, it, what should God's sovereignty be? It's not something to be feared. Our deserty, our friend that's preached here, has often said this, God's sovereignty is like a soft pillow that you lay your head down on at night. Sovereignty is something that you can rest in that you can be secured in, that you can know that God is in control, you can have a confidence, you can have a peace. And ultimately, as Paul says, what should it lead to? Worship. I like to call it a humble awe. You are humble, you have humility, and you stand in awe of this God who has chosen to save you. There's an old hymn by Isaac Watts that really sums up this entire theme of God's abounding grace and His electing love. Let me read to you the words. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Thy body slain, sweet Jesus thine, and bathed in its own blood, while the firm mark of wrath divine His soul in anguish stood. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while His dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. He says something in those words, amazing pity grace unknown, and love beyond degree. This is the greatest mystery in the universe to me. If somebody were asking, what's the most difficult thing for you to understand, Sean Cole, like they asked Albert Einstein, here's the most difficult thing for me to understand. That the all-powerful God of the universe, who is holy and righteous and without sin, would dare to save a sinner such as I. That's incomprehensible to me. And all I can say is like like, like the writer of the hymn here, Isaac Watts, it's grace unknown. It's something I can't understand, but it is a love beyond degree. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And there may be some of you that are struggling with this doctrine. Some of you that haven't quite put your hands and your head In your mind and your heart around what this whole election thing means. Maybe just the word predestination sends shivers up your back and you're not quite sure. Can I just encourage you this morning to, um, regardless of what you believe about it, just rest in God's love for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, God has set his love upon you. God has adopted you. God has chosen you. God has, has graced you in Jesus Christ. Focus on God's love for you. Not because you deserve it, but because he simply wanted to show it to you.